0: We are picking up this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Last week we saw this remarkable intervention by the beautiful and intelligent Abigail saving an enraged and offended David from exacting his own vengeance from which she called the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. And we'll remember that in addition she prophetically proclaimed a sure house a lasting dynasty for David. And at the end of her uh, cunning and effective speech, just before our text this morning, she says to David, And when the Lord God brings my, my Lord success, remember your servant. So she asks David to remember her. One wonders, remember her to what end? Just to be favorable? Remember her with gratitude? Or is she hinting at a willingness to be married to David? Signs of which I alluded to last week are already in the text. In any event, David does not forget. I mean, how could he forget really? He does remember her. And so we're going to look at the text from 1 Samuel 25 under two headings. Vengeance in verses 32 through 39. And marriage in verses 40 to 44. Yes, maybe a strange combination, vengeance and marriage. Vengeance and marriage, they go together like a horse and carriage. And in God's redemptive purposes, it turns out you can't have one without the other. So first, vengeance. Abigail finishes her appeal to David, and his response shows that She has prevailed. David says to her, Praise be to the Lord God of Israel who has sent you today to meet me. David blessed the Lord and then he turns and he blesses Abigail. And may you be blessed for your good judgment over against my temporary lunacy. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hands. This is a crucial theme, perhaps the crucial theme, because it's mentioned four times in this chapter. David has been restrained from avenging himself. And here in the text, David restates his original oath to kill all the males belonging to Nabal's house. Only when he restates it, he makes it contingent upon Abigail's intervening. As the Lord lives who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, then not one of Nabal's males would be alive at daybreak. So by reframing the vow this way, David repudiates the original vow, which we should follow his example. If you make an ungodly vow or an unbiblical vow or a rash vow or a foolish vow, you should simply repent of it. And David does that here. Unlike Saul or Nabal, David is amenable to reason. Yes, he's volatile and he's passionate, but he's not deranged. He's not mentally unstable. He is a man who, when confronted with his own recklessness and his own sin, learns and is open to repentance. Something Saul never seems to be able to Accomplish. So at this point, David accepts the gift, that massive gift that Abigail had loaded up. He accepts it from her hand and says, go in peace. Go home in peace. I've granted your request. Which means your family and your house and your estate is safe. Go in peace. So now Abigail goes back, back to the estate, back to Nabal, who's in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He's behaving like a saul like a foolish king. The text tells us he was in high spirits and very drunk. He's enjoying the fruits of his labor and the fruits of his laborers, which is, fittingly, how he will die. Abigail tells him nothing until daybreak. Strategically, she waits for the alcohol to wear off. And in the morning, when he's sober, the text says she told him All of these things. Now, we don't know exactly what she said or how she said it. But clearly what she said terrified Nabal. The text says his heart failed him and he became like a stone. You might recall last week, Abigail had said that the lives of David's enemies would be hurled away from the pocket of a sling that is hurled away like like a stone is slung. And there's a throwback to that here. Nabal's heart now becomes like a stone. In modern terms, we'd say he had a heart attack or a stroke. Ten days later, the text says, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Whatever the underlying medical condition might be, the narrator makes it clear that this death is a direct act of the Lord's judgment. And news of this Demise of Nabal gets back to David, and there's no, you know, there's no sentimental expression of grief. There's no mourning. There's no condolences. Rather, he rejoices. Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. God is the just judge, and when He renders judgment on the enemies of His people, as imperfect and deeply flawed as they are when he renders judgment on their enemies, who are also God's enemies, Scripture, in both testaments, and this is something we like to avoid, it shows the people of God rejoicing. Now, it's important to remember, this is not about, especially in the case of David, because David's a public person. He's an anointed one, a Christ, a type of the, the coming messianic king. So this is not about a personal vendetta or even merely spitefully rejoicing over an enemy's downfall. Scripture actually forbids that. This is about, even if the line is hard to see sometimes, or even if in David's heart things are mixed up and confused, this is to be about glorifying God for his justice. We heard much of that in hymn number 48, which we sang as the hymn for preparation. I would commend the lyrics of that hymn to you. This is about glorifying God for His justice, praising and defending His people, Right for prospering His anointed King, His anointed Christ. We praise Him for that mighty, mighty defense. Now, seen in that light, the church, again, in both Testaments now, the church does rejoice in the overflow of the wicked. Let me give you two examples which will suffice here. First, in the Old Testament we have these words from Psalm 58. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And then in the New Testament, at the end of history, from Revelation chapter 19, at the fall of Babylon, the text says this, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Now we may think that this is unbecoming, or perhaps not fitting in the New Testament, but we just heard it in the New Testament. More than that, anyone who prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth, as it is in heaven, is caught up in the movement of this justice, this just judgment, and is surely going to rejoice when this just judgment, prayed for every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, is manifested. The Lord, David says, has done two things here. He's kept me, from avenging myself, that's what we called preventative providence last week, preventative providence. And he's brought down Nabal's wrongdoing on his own head. And for this, David blesses God the judge. And then at the end of verse 39, he sends word to Abigail. He had picked up on her hint to remember her. And her not so subtle disgust with the marriage she was in, Though it's unlikely David would have needed any of this, given her beauty, her shrewdness, her saving intervention on behalf of his kingship. In any event, he remembers her, sending word, asking her to become his wife. And that brings me to the second point here, which is marriage. In verse 40, David sends servants to Abigail with this charming message, unlikely to become a hallmark card. Here's the message. David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. It's a very no-frills marriage proposal. Not forcibly, of course. She's not seized. She's more than a willing partner. She bows down to the ground and declares she's ready to be the servant of David's servants. Which, of course, shows a certain kind of humility, but she knows she's going to receive a higher honor. She's going to be the wife of the future king. And she's ready for the visit. The text says she quickly gets on a donkey, takes five servants, and goes back with David's men and becomes his wife. Nabal's body is barely cold. So we saw last week, Abigail's a kind of female counterpart to David. Shrewd, bold, intelligent, beautiful. And there's little doubt, little doubt that this marriage is politically advantageous for David. For what happens here is David acquires Nabal's wealth, his property, his estate, and David's influence then would grow in and around Hebron, which is where this occurs, or near to where this occurs. And that's where David eventually establishes his early kingdom before he moves the throne to Jerusalem. So this little event is much more important, perhaps, than it might appear. This represents a massive increase in in power and wealth and stability for David and his marauding band of men. The chapter ends on a couple of anticlimactic notes, though they are ominous, ominous in their understated way. The text tells us David had also married Ahinoam of Jezreel, so she and Abigail were both his wives. And we're told that Saul has taken Michael, technically David's third wife at this point, first in time, but his third wife, and given her to another man named Paltiel. An act which is probably illegal, but it's probably an act of spite from Saul since Michael helped David to escape. But it's also a political action. It removes any claim David has to the throne via marriage into the royal family. Again, it's Saul treating David as if he were dead. Now, as much of a deliverance, and we can assume this was a joyful one for Abigail, as much of a deliverance as it is, there is a dark shadow here. There is something deeply unbecoming, something tawdry going on with David. And we can see it here. Samuel had warned way back in chapter 8 that the king would be greedy and take and take and take. And David is now taking and accumulating wives. And the Torah forbids kings from multiplying wives. By the time David consolidates his kingdom in Hebron, he will have six sons from six different women. So even now, before he assumes the throne, the seeds are being sown, which will wreak havoc with his household and his government. We saw last week that we are often most vulnerable after our greatest triumphs, after God grants us a signal victory. And this note about David and these three wives of his hints at much greater turmoil which is to come. So let us conclude. I'm going to make two points here. I'm going to make them in the opposite order of the sermon. Marriage first, then vengeance. So first, marriage. There was a serious point in alluding to the little ditty in the opening about vengeance and marriage that you can't have one without the other. Abigail's old master, her old way of life, suffers judgment, and she becomes the bride of the Christ, the King of Israel. Likewise, Paul says, We have died. We've died to the law, we've died to sin. We've died to the world. We've died to the old order in order that we might be joined or wedded to another, to the risen Christ, to the greater David. Death, then resurrection. Vengeance on the old order, then marriage. Union with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. This is just what Christianity is. Judgment onto salvation. Now, notice the judgment is now something in which we are enmeshed. We are implicated. We are involved in. Right? You, could, you could read some of these texts and think, well, the judgment's always on the bad guys. The vengeance is on them. And, you know, David gets away scot-free. But as these texts come to fruition and to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the judgment is on us. And on the whole fallen order of which we are a part. But it is judgment unto salvation. It is vengeance unto marriage. So as was true for Abigail, so it is true for you. It is true for every baptized Christian. It is true for the whole body of Christ. This is what baptism is. Vengeance unto marital union with the risen Jesus. Immediately after the vengeance on Babylon, which I cited earlier from the book of Revelation, a vengeance tied to the end of the age and the coming of Christ, we hear the voice of a great multitude crying out and they say this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then an angel commands John to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Vengeance, then marriage. The destruction of the Babylonian world system then the wedding supper of the Lamb. So it turns out these two things are deeply implicated, interlocked, and related to one another throughout the Bible. There is no seeing Jesus face to face. There's no bridal communion with our Lord. There's no fullness of glory. There's no renewal and healing of the creation without vengeance. Holy, just vengeance. Vengeance to, if you will, end all vengeance. And attempts to excise or to cut out vengeance and other mean things from Christianity leave you with some other impotent and mutilated thing. It turns out that without God's holy vengeance, the entrenched evil within us, the pervasive evil without the evils of the past, the brokenness of the creation, of which deadly viruses are but one minor aspect. Without that holy vengeance, these things cannot be done away with. They cannot be destroyed. Vengeance is the prelude to union with Christ, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It is the act which liberates the groaning creation. So that's marriage. I want to talk a little bit more about this vengeance. Scripture tells us that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And what does that mean for us as we live in the world? It turns out it means quite a lot, actually. Now, we've made this point before, but I want to reiterate it because it's important. Far from inducing or encouraging violence, the teaching that God is a just avenger of evil, is the basis, the ground, upon which we can live in peace. That the fact that God takes vengeance, especially at the end of history, is the very reason why we do not need and must not exercise it. Divine vengeance at the end of history, then, underwrites our nonviolence in the middle of history. Let me repeat that. Divine violence at the end of history, divine vengeance at the end of history, underwrites our nonviolence in the middle of history. We forsake wrath. We forsake grasping and controlling, shepherding the wind. We forsake the seductions of worldly power. We turn the other cheek. We refuse to settle petty scores precisely because Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And His are the only hands in which this kind of vengeance is safe. In the meantime, we imitate the earthly life of Jesus. As I've said a couple of times, Jesus never tells his disciples, take up your resurrection and follow me. He says, take up your cross. The Christian life in this age, until the new creation arrives in fullness, is a cruciform life. A life where power is found in suffering and in weakness. The power of the resurrection is found, Paul tells us, in being conformed to his death. So in the meantime, we imitate the earthly life of Jesus. That life is the model for Christians, for Christians waiting for vindication, for Christians crying out and yearning and longing, waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. As the Apostle Peter puts it, Christ suffered for you. Notice, listen, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Right, the cross is not just a great victory where all your sins are taken away, and you can now on the other side of it, you can just leave it behind. And now it's all resurrection glory. Christ suffered for you, leaving the church a pattern, Peter means, so that you might follow that way. And the apostle goes on and says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And listen to this when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That would end all quarreling and all arguments in all families and in all relations on earth today. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't say, you know what? Wait till the resurrection. I'm coming for you guys. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's this perpetual entrusting of one's case to the God who judges justly and whose judgment is often deferred in this age. This is the hardest thing to do when suffering. We heard in the New Testament lesson from Romans 12, be patient in tribulation. Patience in tribulation. Jesus is the eminent the model for that. He can, what was he doing in his whole suffering existence? Entrusting himself to the judge who will judge justly. That is, he left the question of justice and vengeance in the hands of his Father. And as it was for him, so it is to be for us. As our Lord told us, no servant is above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. That's the pattern. And we get it from the apostolic writings as well. After exhorting us to live peaceably with all, Paul says this, and again, this is from the New Testament lesson. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul continues, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I mean, if this is how we are to treat our enemies, right? People hostile to us, people seeking to do us harm, how are we to treat our friends who might offend us with a petty slight or an oversight? You're to heap An abundance of goodness and kindness on your enemies, and thus, of course, on all people. And the apostle concludes by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The cross, and our conformity to it, is the great weapon of Christian overcoming of evil. This is the lesson David learned, or if you will, probably relearned it the hard way through Abigail's intervention. For in David's anger, right, in his bloodlust, we are reminded that without the coming vengeance, the coming, or if you don't like the word vengeance here, it's a scriptural word, we should like it, but think of it as God's holy reordering of the creation to establish it in justice and to end all violence forever. Without that, all we would have is violence All we would have, it might be verbal violence, it might be relational violence, but all we would have is violence and grasping and striving for political power and turf protecting and retribution and endless games of leverage and control, personal and social. And we'd have all that without any justice, without any just retribution, or without any future hope of the world being rectified. The God of vengeance, we heard this in the call to worship, the God of vengeance, as Psalm 94 puts it, has shown forth. Psalm 94 calls on God to do so. Oh, God of vengeance, shine forth. And here's the surprising thing. He has shown forth first as the one who is judged. He has shown forth by bearing vengeance in his cross, in Jesus Christ. That you might die to the old order and be united to the church's bridegroom by faith. That we might live lives of nonviolent love. And finally, that one comes as judge. The one who was judged will come as judge to usher in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there, all of our Nabal like foolishness and greed and self absorption and all of our David like violence and anger are banished. Banished into the nonviolent, peaceable light of the new creation. Vengeance and marriage. Vengeance and marriage. They do go together like a horse and carriage. Let me tell you, brother and sister. You cannot have one without the other. Amen.